From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You may have heard the ghastly expression Twixtmas to signify the days between Christmas and New Year. Whilst a partridge in a pear tree and those five gold rings might be the first thing that comes to mind when I mention the 12 days of Christmas. But traditionally speaking, it's precisely the phrase we need. For Christmas Day is really day zero of Christmas, and after it, historically, we have celebrated 12 days more, ending only on Epiphany, the 6th of January, also known as Twelfth Night. And in Tudor England, it was at the midpoint of the Christmas tide celebrations, New Year, and not on Christmas Day, that gifts were given. To think about how Christmas and New Year were celebrated in Tudor and Stuart England, I met Dr. Felicity Hill. Dr. Hill is an Emeritus Fellow and a former Fellow and Tutor in Modern History at Jesus College, Oxford. She's also a Fellow of both the British Academy and the Royal Historical Society. And she's the author of Hospitality in Early Modern England and The Power of Gifts, Gift Exchange in Early Modern England. Fittingly, she invited me to join her to chat over a cup of tea and a biscuit at her home in Oxford. It is a great pleasure to be able to sit and talk with you in the comfort of your own house about this wonderful aspect of early modern life. And we're thinking about, I suppose, the ritual year, but particularly about the 12 days of Christmas and about New Year. Did the Tudors mark the 12 days of Christmas? Yes, very emphatically, they did mark the 12 days of Christmas. One can think of aspects of the full ritual year which begin to die away during the 16th century, but the 12 days of Christmas certainly not amongst them. And it is really the apogee of the social year, I suppose one would say, in a more modern context. And... Each of the aspects of the 12 days can be identified and found in quite a wide range of sources of the period. Take me through what those 12 days look like then. Right. Well, all of them are potentially feast days, both in the formal liturgical sense and in the social and secular sense, which is probably more interesting for our purposes. But within the 12 days, there are patterns. Christmas Day itself, which is the beginning of the 12 days, is the first and major feast, but it is still, at least until the Commonwealth period, focused quite largely on religion and feasting alongside that. Then you have New Year's Day itself, 
which is complicated by the fact that really in the 16th century, the calendar year doesn't start on the 1st of January. It starts on the 25th of March. However, it's quite clear that socially and structurally, people think of the 1st of January as the beginning of the new year. And that is the day for feasting, again, but also and above all for gift giving and gift exchange, which isn't a feature of Christmas Day itself. And then the third great feast is the Epiphany, the last of the 12 days, Shakespeare and Twelfth Night and so on. And that, at least in England, is entirely, again, a feasting day, very little to do with gifts, but a lot to do with entertainment. And I think it's not accidental that that's when Shakespeare's great play is staged. So there's a cycle between those three special days. Every day is potentially a feasting day of one kind or another, depending on who you are, what your wealth is, how you're involved with your tenants or the lords or whatever. So if we think about the feasts, first of all, who was expected to offer hospitality to whom? Broadly, the Lord is expected to offer hospitality to his tenants, to his inferiors, and ultimately, of course, in a Christian and charitable society, to the poor. So the pattern would be feasting from above, within the top of the social hierarchy, down through to those who are in one form or other dependents. It varies, of course, in the environment you're in. An urban environment, some of the feasting might be through the guilds. But in a rural environment, we should think of this, I think, mainly as the lord, the landowner, offering hospitality to his dependents in the widest sense of that term. And I suppose you could ask the same question about gift giving. So are gifts exchanged simply between kin and friends or do they have other purposes? No. In fact, although we do know of plenty of evidence of gifts being exchanged between kin or amongst kin and friends, more or less in the way that we exchange Christmas presents, more important, I think, is, again, the gifts that are given up and down the social order, gifts given by dependents to their lords or by their lords to their servants, gifts given by tenants to their lords. And so I suppose we should think of most of the gift giving, proportionately at least, as asymmetrical rather than dependent on a set of very close social relations, although those do exist and they are used as well as part of the gift-giving process. So that's really interesting because it suggests that the rituals around Christmas, broadly construed, 12 days of Christmas, New Year's, are perhaps primarily about reinforcing power relations and hierarchy and not so much, perhaps, about the spirit of sort of love and charity? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I suppose it's perhaps difficult for us in retrospect to completely separate those two (laughs) trends and pull them apart and they may depend on the nature of the personal relationships at any point in time. But yes, I think it is correct to say that there is a strong element, at least, both in the feasting and in the giving, which is involving the reinforcement of hierarchical forms of behaviour. Having said that, of course, there is also a subversive element that comes into the story because you do have lords of misrule, 
And you do have, even with ordinary tenants, a sense that they are, briefly at least, able to invert the social order while yet participating within it, for example, by demanding food and drink from their lord, in a ritualistic sense, at least. Could you describe the lords of misrule? The interesting thing is how little we know about the Lords of Misrule, because what we have normally is the household accounts where the Lords of Misrule are paid (laughs) after the event. What it looks like is that they are figures who play what one might in other circumstances think of as the jester's role. They accumulate as part of the entertainment of the occasion for the evening, whatever it is. They accumulate their own way of ordering the household putting it on within a subversive set of patterns and ensuring that there is a sense in which what would normally be done, the demands made by Lord to his tenants, are inverted briefly. And what we have is a Lord who demands of even the actual Lord and mistress the right to behave in a certain way for a brief period of time. I think we should probably see this as something which is done maybe not even over the whole of the 12 days, but in some circumstances would just be part of an entertainment provided within the household for an evening and a figure nominated, perhaps a figure from within the household itself, as the Lord of Misrule, able to overturn a social order. But it's easier to see the payments that are made to them than it is to see how they actually behave, I'm afraid, at least in the Tudor materials. Yes, yes. I mean, this is the question of sources and what we can know about it. Yeah. And I've always sort of seen the Lords of Misrule as, well, following Natalie's even Davis, really, as a safety valve. You know, they're just something to let out some of the tension of those who are inferior, perhaps, and have a moment where they get to be in charge. But very much knowing that they won't be for long. Yeah, I think it's very tempting to look at them in that very functional sort of way and they represent a certain way of stabilising the social order while inverting it and I'm sure that's a part of it. I mean I think there is a sense in which at the best they become built into a regular routine accepting that there has to be something that is different about this set of occasions. Just to take another obvious example though it's not so much to do with the secular household you have the boy bishops who are there before the Reformation and even survived right through the Elizabethan period. And the boy bishops, again, children, usually choristers probably of a cathedral or a great parish church, who are appointed for a day or two days, will depend exactly what the local arrangements are. And again, they will invert the social order. They will be those who lead the choir. They will be those who take the place of the bishop or possibly the dean, if it's a cathedral, and who are able to order the service according to their own claims to authority. Same sort of pattern, but of course that normally in a, an ecclesiastical rather than in a secular context. And again, it's perhaps characteristic of the whole way of thinking about these things that both those sorts of people, if you like, both the boy bishop in a cathedral and the Lord of Misrule in a great household, are targeted at this period when maybe the general social order is potentially a little destabilised anyway by the long winter celebrations and by the long winter break from work and labour. Everything is slightly 
inverted in that period of time. So if we go back to gift giving, because you've done so much wonderful work on this, I suppose, first of all, is this something done only between elites or could we imagine that the majority of the population is involved in it? It's a very difficult question to answer because obviously the nature of our evidence points us constantly to the elite. We know about how the royal household functions. We know quite a lot about how many of the aristocratic households function. We know a reasonable amount about gift-giving amongst particular groups, for example, lawyers. There's a certain amount of evidence about how they behave in relation to gifts and gift-giving. The further down the social order you go, the less easy it is to pick this up. And I think one must obviously recognise that gift-giving, although very important in this society is also one of those things that can be enlarged or diminished in size depending on the wealth and prosperity that individuals have available. So I think we can reasonably assume that if you go far enough down the society, gift-giving is going to be of a fairly modest kind. There's a lovely bitchy quotation from Erasmus who is given to bitchy quotations about how he thinks how wonderful it is that he's communicating with all his friends in the humanist network and how they exchange ideas and they exchange literary devices and wit and wisdom and so on and so forth. Whereas ordinary people, he doesn't use the language ordinary people, but those who are of the common sort are those who exchange knives and handkerchiefs and small tokens. But it's an interesting comment, not just because it's always fun to see Erasmus being bitchy, but because also it does show his emphasis in the sort of slightly longer version that he gives here on the sense that even very ordinary people, when they exchange letters or communicate in one form or another, can often add small gifts. And those small gifts, tokens, we might say, are very much a part of the way the culture functions. So I don't think we should exclude any idea of gifts not being given fairly far down the society. But of course, if we're thinking of grand gifts, regular gifts, constrained by social convention gifts, perhaps we would be looking at higher up the society. Interestingly, what you've just said, Erasmus, referring to the gifts that people of the common sort exchange, they seem like useful gifts, knives and handkerchiefs and things, more likely to have a use as opposed to some of the more showy items that we'll see at the top of society. <laughs> yes, I guess this was probably quite a lot of that. And another way of thinking about gifts, if we go to the levels below the elites, is thinking about what a gift might involve. And we started by talking about hospitality. A lot of the gifts that are offered, I think, and exchanged further down society are the gifts of entertainment on a regular basis, not grand things like the spell 12 days, but welcoming others into their households, providing in an urban context for what becomes, at some level, charity, if you like, but generosity, networking and linking people together at that level. I tend to think, although it's based on, I think, rather fragmentary evidence, that that sort of approach to gifts and giving is probably more common as we go further down through the social structure, certainly rather than grant gifts of any kind, obviously. And food features as a gift a lot, doesn't it? Yes. Tell us about how food was given. At one level, this is just a practical matter because obviously food is 
what people have in a rural context, what they have available to give if they're not necessarily particularly prosperous, even if they are prosperous. And I think the expectation, as in that example I gave from Erasmus, is that food of a fairly modest kind is exchanged when you have it available. I mean, the generosity that is associated with giving hospitality is also the generosity of taking a capon, a large chicken, with you, rather than nothing at all. And I often wonder whether our own sense that we bring something to the feast doesn't have the faintest of connections with that way of thinking about food and bringing it to the tables of those that we are entertained by. So... We've got that fairly modest side of things, but if we go further up the society and we go back to that idea of asymmetry and the way in which there is an expectation, particularly at the 12 days of entertainment, it's often an expectation which is linked to the giving of food by tenants and by dependents, maybe by local townsmen or whatever it is, to the Lord as a form of tribute virtually. I mean, perhaps tribute is too strong a term, but a way of showing their Lord their gratitude. And so food becomes a very important part of those Christmas festivities to the point where, at least in some contexts, it's almost as though this is obligatory rather than simply a set of gifts or presents. That is to say that it's food rent, almost. Sometimes, I think, actually still in the 16th century, food rent rather than just presents. But the boundaries between these ideas are fairly flexible. And we find that hundreds of capons are being produced for some of the great households by the tenants as their form of tribute to the Lord. Yes, I was thinking what I said earlier about, you know, love and charity and to what extent that's motivating things. Slightly facetious even thinking about the modern day in when actually many of our gifts are given at Christmas with a distinct sense of reciprocity. You know, oh, yes. there's a Amazon wish lists and gift cards. Indeed, all gifts actually are given without that element, which was almost crucial to gift giving of sort of just being freely and voluntarily given. Oh, yes. yes, I think that's right. There's another aspect of that business of reciprocity that is worth remarking, particularly in relation to New Year gifts. Gifts in the broadest sense, in, in the culture of the 16th century, as in many cultures, are sometimes freely given, sometimes less so. But there is very clearly a regular expectation that the return of that gift will be delayed, that the gift is given, that is form of generosity and tribute. The return, again, think hospitality, how long is it before we get the neighbours back again for dinner, that sort of thing. The reciprocity is delayed and it's in the nature of proper thinking about the gift in this culture that it should be delayed. But the difference with New Year is obvious and we can pick it up from our own awareness of presence and present giving because the reciprocity is built in to the structure. You give, but you give to receive. And it all happens within your 24 hours of New Year Day or Christmas Day or whatever it is. That gives the presence of New Year a very different feel to the presence that might be given, shall we say, let's take an example, when Elizabeth goes on progress and presents are given to her. There's no expectation of immediate 
return. But of course, there's an expectation of delayed return. Oh, yes, how lovely to see you, your match. Can we please have something for our own town two years down the line or whatever it is? So that idea that true gift giving has to have built into it a sense of being spontaneous at the moment of giving and that the delay is the return and the gift exchange, if you like, happening at a later stage. But when we look at New Year gifts, in general, I mean, I can give exceptions to this, but in general, the idea is both that you give and you return, and that is a closed pattern of exchange that's happened, which reinforces bonds, obviously, but doesn't bind the giver to act in a certain way immediately afterwards, which is in a way complicated, but I think we can see if we project some of our own awareness about presence onto this way of thinking, that there is a difference between the socks you get at Christmas and whatever you give in return, you know, the sherry or something, and the sense that you entertain, but you delay returning the entertainment, or you give in circumstances where maybe in charitable giving, which doesn't expect any immediate reciprocation. Where did the idea of giving gifts at New Year come from? Roman background, I think, is necessary here, that this is the great gift-giving season in the classical past. Now, we have to be very careful about what is connected and what isn't connected here historically, but at least one of the major strands that feeds through into European culture and particularly becomes very strong in English culture is that how the Romans did it. And that's probably reinforced in the 16th century as deeper awareness of the classical past comes back. But I think The second dimension is that of feudal dependence. So this is the great occasion for those who are tenants-in-chief originally of the Crown to come to the great Christmas feast, New Year feast, and to give gifts or to show dependence, hence the asymmetry, I think, of these relationships. So those are the two main things. I think what is one of the interesting things that I've never quite clarified in my own mind why this is so but although the Christmas season in the broadest sense is the season of gifts everywhere in Western Europe there is a difference in what you choose as your moments of gift giving in the case of the Low Countries it's St Nicholas the Feast of St Nicholas hence ultimately Father Christmas I was wondering about that. If you've got in the Low Countries and Germany, I suppose, as well, what becomes Germany, St Nicholas bringing gifts to the poor and to children. I was wondering how that related to New Year, Yes, well, I mean, that is very clear. And yet, again, one has to be careful about the evidence, but I think that it's pretty clear that the only way in which the Feast of St Nicholas is really celebrated in pre-Tudor England, where we can track it, is through the boy bishop. The boy bishops are often appointed for the Feast of St Nicholas, although that's not really about gift-giving, that's about inversion, and we've talked about the sort of celebration that is involved in turning the world upside down. Sometimes the boy bishops are actually appointed for the Feast of the Holy Innocents, which is the 28th, and is right in of December, and is right in the midst, therefore, of the 12 days. So even there, we haven't got a very clear pattern, but also the other element in some continental countries is, of course, that Twelfth Night is the period of gift-giving, which in a way makes much more sense (laughs) ideologically because it connects with the coming of the kings. But 
I think I'm fairly confident in saying that that is never really an occasion for gift giving in an English context where we can trace it. Instead, it's the biggest celebration with entertainment associated with it, hence going back to the earlier point about Twelfth Night. So we've got this one pattern which seems to have established itself probably because in the medieval period it was established through the royal court above all that ultimately had some sort of a trickle-down effect on the elites. So we can conclude that St Nicholas isn't much marked, at least not in the same tradition as his feast is marked in Central Europe in England. Yeah. And perhaps some of it does come down to which saints are particularly popular in yeah. which countries. Because I was thinking when I went to Germany a few years back for New Year and where it's Sylvester, it's still, you know, marking a feast day in some ways. Oh, yes. In French, they're called the Etrennes. Is that the same thing as the it's, New Year's It's the same gift? thing, yes. And it's interesting that Natalie Davis, who looks at the gift in 16th century France, points out that it's exactly the same sort of pattern. In that there's all sorts of aspects to Etrennes, but this asymmetry is an element in it. You give, particularly to your household dependents, you give sometimes to those above you in the social order. The less significant element is what we might call the symmetrical exchanges with kin, although, as in France and in England, they seem to be common. Essentially, one should think of the English version of the Twelve Days as pretty secular, I think, despite the fact that, obviously... There is a religious dimension very clearly at the beginning and at the end of the cycle, and the feast days between Christmas and New Year are celebrated in England, of course, as elsewhere, holy innocence I mentioned just now. I think Eric Ives at one point, thinking about the gifts that Anne Boleyn sends Henry VIII along with the letters of hers, which we no longer have, calls one of them an etrenne. But I'd have to go back and check that. Yes, yes, I wouldn't be surprised, actually. There's sufficient knowledge, I think, of the French court, and Henry VIII's court particularly, to use the language. I have come across a couple of references to it, and certainly it seems to have great similarity to the English celebrations. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
if we were thinking a bit higher up society yes. and we wanted to think about the elites, what sort of sources would we turn to to access the sort of gifts? In those areas, it's almost always the forms of the household accounts that are relevant. And that will vary. Normally, my obsession with food gifts comes from the fact that the clerks of the kitchens kept good records of how much food was brought in as gift as against how much was purchased in. So that's a very tempting source to use, and I've used it with great regularity. Just occasionally, you get households where one almost feels a bit of an obsession with the gifts of the new year. The best example to cite, I think, probably is the household of Sir William Moore, who was one of Elizabeth's courtiers. Upper gentry, very much a key figure in the political order of Surrey, Lowesley House is where he lives, very much favoured by Elizabeth as, for example, one of his daughters was one of the maids of honour and so on and so forth. He's clearly very conscious of exactly what is given and instead of handing it over to the clerks of the kitchen. He actually keeps a list and it's in his own hand year on year on year for about 30 years, something like that, of what he is given for New Year gifts. And there is a superabundance of capons. There's all sorts of food. The family's home is quite near Guildford and the merchants of Guildford produce marsh pane, the sugar loaves, these sort of things. But all of it is recorded. And in his case, just to go back to this symmetry, asymmetry issue, most of this is from his tenants or dependents. But he also runs along with this information about what his family have given him. There's an excess of nightcaps that his daughter (laughs) makes for him over the course of time. Now, that's an unusual sort of source, but the much more usual thing is the basic household accounts will give us the information, and we can sometimes link that to other sources. If we go up the society and we really do get to the royal court, then the great thing is the gift rolls. They survive to some degree for the 15th century, a few limited ones. They are much more available for the first half of the 16th century. They're wonderful for Elizabeth's reign, where I think we have gift rolls for about just under 20 of the 44 years of her reign survive. And then in a rather sort of dying fall, we have a few for James and Charles. The gift rolls provide all the information that is necessary for the royal jewel house to give the gift back to those who've given the queen or king gifts. So if, shall we say, let's take a hypothetical example, if the Earl of Leicester under Elizabeth has given jewels which are thought to be worth a certain amount, then a return gift will be made to him from the queen's jewel house, which will notionally reciprocate what he has been given. I mean, it actually becomes more complicated than that, as you can imagine. But these are a wonderful source for finding out what the crown gives and what is given to the crown at New Year and at other times, but mostly at New Year. And do some of the gifts given get given away again? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, it's one of those, again, you know, our sensitivity about gifts is not exactly that of the 16th century. Or was Elizabeth in particular gets her 
I think normally her household rather than the jewel office, but anyway, somebody to record in the margin whether she has retained something or given it away again. And she has no inhibition about giving away things that we might think of as really rather personal gifts that have been made, beautiful handkerchiefs presumably made by some of her dependents. They're passed on to somebody else. Whereas I think we feel a sense of social embarrassment but the idea of passing the socks over to somebody else. And even more so, I suppose, if they've been beautifully embroidered yes. with a letter E or something. That's right, yes. You, we would think, oh, you've got to hang on to that. Whereas actually, I suppose, for those receiving it, it has even more honour because it it's gives, got the Queen's yes, initial on right, it. right, yes. I think we have to link this to the idea that, that honour accrues to something which has, even if it's only passed fairly briefly through Elizabeth's hands, at least passed through her hands and been handed to some presumably yes. worthy to well, I suppose we see that in the auctions of famous people's clothes and things like that. It's not a gift-giving, but we see that they've worn that dress somehow yes, makes it valuable. Yes, that's right. Clearly, Elizabeth, who is superbly attuned to what you can do about the gift economy and how it should work within the royal court, will often wear a jewel or a piece of clothing in display, maybe just once or maybe once or twice, and it will be remarked by the newsletter writers or by correspondents or by Bess of Hardwick, who is always picking this sort of thing up. And that accrues a certain honour, particularly if she's worn something, which isn't so very different from the modern cult, although I think we place less emphasis on the individual here than maybe they would do in the case of Elizabeth. Yes, I was thinking... Absolutely, someone like Bess of Hardwick or John Hussey under Henry VIII. You need these people who are very gossipy and who write, oh, yes, who write accounts around them. Yes, we have seen the Queen wearing this on her girdle, yes. We can see it in a sense as fairly gossipy, superficial stuff, but I think uh, certainly in the hands of Elizabeth, this represents a major part of the way in which she displays herself, obviously visually, but also manages the court process. And there is obviously an obsession with how this works. There's also, for the Henry VIII period, one or two wonderful bits of gossip from Eustace Chapuis, who is the imperial ambassador, who is always looking for what's happening politically and picks up one or two moments at which the gift-giving exchanges really seem to signal favour or disfavour. So it's more than just superficial passing the cups around, as it were. I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. First of all, think about the gifts to the monarchs. Could it get competitive between different nobility? Yes, I think it does. But the gifts to the monarch at New Year, it's worth pointing out that they are, again, very hierarchical in their nature. So there is a clear expectation that all bishops, all senior nobles, almost all the household officers, and below them those who have served the household in specialist roles, for example, the cooks, going right down to that level. All of these people are expected to give. They must give at New Year. It's not a question of, yes, I think I might fancy the idea this year or not. But within that, yes, there's undoubtedly a strong sense of competition. I use the example of the Earl of Leicester, or some of Leicester's jewels given to the Queen at Christmas are obviously not only enormously elaborate, but are affirming his role as a royal favourite. Conversely, on the whole, the bishops and many of the nobles who aren't actually at the court simply give money. 
And I think there's not a great sense of competition there. There is an expectation that they are performing properly in their duty. So it depends very much on where you stand in the courtly order of things, who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. And on the whole, the bishops tend fairly consistently to be out so they can (laughs) afford to just give money. I should also remark that money is an interesting gift because a we again have a sense, I think, of some embarrassment about giving cash precisely because we know it's actual value. We may do it to younger relatives or something like that, but by and large we have a certain embarrassment. No such embarrassment seems to obtain in the 16th century. And many of these gifts that are given by nobles to the crown are actual coin, although they are always presented in a purse. You're not just a question of dropping a few coins in the royal hand. It is a question of a fine purse in which you present some gold coin or whatever it is that you are obliged to present. Yes, so that has perhaps two functions. The beauty of the purse, but also how much is given can't initially be seen. Yes, that's right. So there is an element which might connect with our sense of money as an embarrassment. (laughs) And thinking about the monarch giving gifts... Would the nature of the New Year gift that one received from the monarch be a sort of reliable barometer of whether you were in or out of royal favour? I think on the whole probably a less reliable barometer than the what is given by the noble or the courtier Mm. or whatever. There is undoubtedly though an element of the barometer, the test of popularity. I mentioned just now the way that Chupuy hunts around to find that a few of the people who are out of favour in the Henrician period have been given things that aren't a particular value. My favourite is there that Anne of Cleves is given, I think, a couple of pots, which are not silver or anything like that. They're just pots. (laughs) But this, after she's fallen, as it were, from Henry's favour. So there is that. But more Commonly, you get a sense that the crown is not obliged to give exactly the same to every noble or every bishop or every whatever. There is a differentiation. Not very much, though. A differentiation may be, say, two or three of those who are particularly favoured. Sir Christopher Hatton might get more than his standing as a non-noble gentleman of the court might suggest. But a lot of what the Crown gives at the New Year is pretty standardised, reflecting merely where people stand in the social hierarchy. So it's easy to get excited about Crown giving, but it is fairly routinised, except for a very, very, very small group at the very centre of power. Yes, so I suppose an exception of that sort from that very small group would be something like Henry returning the gold cup that Catherine of Aragon sends him in 31 or 32, wasn't it? And not sending her something in return. Yes, yes. Or Anne of Cleves and her two pots. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, and that's the sort of thing, undoubtedly, that the watchers of the court, ambassadors, hangers-on, John Hussey reporting to Calais and so on, that's the sort of thing they will pick up. So there are some signals there. They're not as powerful as one might expect if what the monarch was doing all the time was constantly manipulating exactly what is given back to the elite. And is it right that Thomas Cromwell had quite a role at Henry's court in New Year's gift-giving? Yes, I think so. I mean, 
Cromwell, there's various elements in what we know about Cromwell's gift-giving. I think one of the ones that interests me most is that we do know a bit from surviving accounts about the gifts that are given to Princess Mary. And Cromwell makes a point of giving. It seems a distinctive point, not just a, oh, yes, I better do something about it. Makes a point of giving to Mary, even when she's deeply out of royal favour. And in that sense, I think it's a sort of characteristic of Cromwell that he's watchful for what might, in the case of gift-giving, be a useful tool of influence and possible control, as usual. He advises the king, it seems quite clear on some occasions, about gift-giving, but it's his own choices about gift-giving that are most interesting. As always, though, the frustration with anything more complex with Cromwell is that we know what is given because we have his in-correspondence. We don't know anything like enough about what he thinks about or does about giving or managing giving because his out-correspondence doesn't survive. It's interesting, I saw The Mirror and the Light, the play recently, oh, and right. I see Mantel over there on your bookshelf, yes. and the point I was thinking about was that Mantel develops the idea that the people believe that Cromwell's in love with Mary, and I wondered if it had come from details uh, like that. Well, that... it could, I mean, I think he certainly does cultivate Mary, I mean, in love with, <laughs> but yes. But I think that awareness that Mary is still there as a key figure, whatever the immediate political crises, is there in Cromwell, and he certainly does seem to make a deliberate set of choices about what he gives her beyond what you might expect, given this ritual of exchange. Yes. Was gift-giving at New Year universally thought to be a good thing, or did it have its detractors? I think it's thought of as something that is a necessary part of the culture, at least in the major part of the 16th century, perhaps even going as late as the last quarter of the 16th century. I think you wouldn't find many detractors because it isn't, in a sense, associated very clearly with any religious celebration. The Reformation makes little impact, at least in the 16th century, on any of this. I mean, there are those whose general puritanical disposition tells them that they shouldn't be lavish about whatever they do in the society, and I could pick up one or two comments there about gift-giving, but not many, and the fact that gift-giving remains associated, of course, with charitable giving to the poor in the 12 days means that it's not the subject of very much criticism in the 16th century. If we take it forward into the 17th century, then it does change a bit, and let's forget the Civil War for the minute, which really complicates things. But in the 17th century, it's obvious that it's thought that this way of providing lavish hospitality over the 12 days is becoming a bit old-fashioned, that it's providing perhaps a justification for not providing more consistent charitable giving in a period, obviously, by the end of the 16th century of considerable crisis in relation to poverty. On the whole, I think the criticism is still when people don't do enough on the 12 days rather than when they overdo it by being overly lavish. But it is, I think, quite evident before the Civil War that there are those who feel that this is not a particularly rational way of providing for the poor and that it is a form of consumption Mm. that perhaps is overly lavish. And then, of course, we get the Civil War, but that's complicating because Christmas is no more. 
Yes, so, so, so the whole institution, yes, the whole idea just... And I would love to have more evidence of what happens to the process of gift-giving because if we think of a lot of this cycle of the 12 days as being focused around the new year and giving gifts and the hospitality that goes with it, although it's secular, it obviously inevitably becomes caught up to some degree with the attack that the Puritan regimes make on the celebration of the Christmas as a religious feast. There's a lot of debate about how much difference it makes because what the Commonwealth regime and then Cromwell are doing is really attacking the religious festival. But inevitably this has an effect also on the sense of largesse and generosity and giving and gift-giving that is associated with the new year. I said rather glibly then Christmas disappears, but it's clear that people carry on practising it because we get complaints about it and they keep saying you mustn't do it. Yes, yes, you mustn't eat mince pies. (laughs) Yes, Yes, so obviously it's carrying on. Yes. Oh, I think quite a lot of it is carrying on. But I think a complication there is one of evidence, particularly that so much of our evidence comes from urban contexts and particularly from London in the Civil War period. And... In London, the feast does seem to have been largely abolished or undermined anyway, not only the religious feast, but some of the gestures of hospitality and giving and so on. I suspect that's much less true in rural contexts and where we have got, as we have in some cases, household accounts that go through the period, we can still see some entertainment going on, but less. I think very often I can think of at least two or three examples where it doesn't seem that the noble households or the elite households are actually providing hospitality over the Christmas period. So I think the general sense of Christmas as celebration is dampened Mm. undoubtedly by the attack on the religious festival. One thing we often associate with New Year today is making resolutions. Oh, yes. Are there any early modern antecedents? Yes, yes. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, we've separated out the resolutions from the presents, haven't we? But again, the evidence is scattered, as you might expect. But yes, New Year resolutions are undoubtedly there and around, both in the 16th and in the 17th century. I think my favourite example from the 16th century is when Paget, who is great advisor to the Duke of Somerset, this is at the beginning of Edward VI's reign, driven mad by the fact that Somerset will not listen to good advice about the management of politics, actually addresses a letter of New Year resolution to him, advising him, advising but, you know, with an edge to it, on how he should manage the kingdom. And he legitimates doing that by the fact that people make New Year resolutions and therefore you can do things or say things at New Year that you can't necessarily say in other contexts, which means, you know, again, we're slightly world turned upside down. Those who are in inferior positions can advise, encourage resolution in their superiors. So you can give the gift of good advice. So if you want to, <laughs> to give your family and friends a piece of your mind, New Year is the time oh, to do absolutely, it. absolutely, <laughs> yes. There's a genre, as you, I'm sure you know, of this period of fathers giving advice to children. And although not m- many examples are 
explicitly focus on the new year. There are some, and a new year resolution or a new year advice. This becomes, in the 17th century, quite a common printed form of advice. You can pick up quite a lot of evidence of people thinking that this is a very good idea. I was amused recently to come across a poem, a very bad poem, written by William Cecil when he gave a New Year gift to his daughter Anne, his favourite child, and what he gives is a spinning wheel, a rather sort of double-edged gift, and he sees this in the bad poem that accompanies it as obviously a real gift, a family gift in our sense of the term, but also a form of advice on what she should do, which is, of course, to spin, but not too much and not too often. That, I think, is just a lovely example because it's such a bad poem. Uh, (laughs) But the, the key here is that that notion of passing advice down at New Year is very common. Can I go back to that idea that you mentioned earlier, that the Tudor year starts on the 25th of March? Yes. Lady Day. And yet we also have the New Year at the beginning of January. Mm. Why are there these two forms of reckoning the year? (sighs) Do you know? (laughs) I'm just genuinely intrigued. Nobody knows the answer to that properly, I think. The start of the official New Year in March owes something to we say. It's Lady Day, it's the beginning of a cycle in agriculture and other forms, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's there. But the main reason, probably in an English context, is the legal pattern, which establishes that as the start point of the legal year. That doesn't really quite answer the question, but it's as yeah. near as one's going and, to and get. And when we have the same sort of thing, if we have the tax year that randomly doesn't start on the 25th of March, no, the 1st of January. But I suppose what we're interested in from the popular perspective is why it is that 1st of January is the one that people hang on to. And it's quite clear that that ties in with the Roman background, as I was saying earlier on, is relevant. That's the start of the classical New Year. And in addition, I think it's partly because it is situated within the 12 days that it's an obvious way of sort of thinking of starting again. That's merely a sort of cultural assumption rather than an official or a legal one. And you can find writers in the 16th century who are playing with the idea of which is the new year. You know, it's, it's not that it's completely unprecedented to think in those terms, but equally you can see that the popular pressure is entirely in the direction of the 1st of January, which makes them much more sense. (laughs) I suppose that those are some of the explanations, but nobody, I think, has ever quite come up with a why this works like this. The fact that, of course, the royal bureaucracy is prepared to accept that the March date is an important thing. It's the change of the regnal year, and that obviously takes us back into an earlier medieval period. I mean, I don't think I'm a sufficient expert on, say, Henry II's reign to know whether the coming of a greater royal bureaucracy helped to reinforce that, but I think that might be a part of it. Has all your work on gift-giving and hospitality changed how you live your life? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. I think it's made me more conscious of social and cultural norms, ours as well as theirs. I mean, hence you know, the point I was making earlier on about reciprocity and how and when one gives gifts or entertainment or things of that kind. At least as a social observer, therefore, I think it's changed my view of things. In terms of how I 
behave or how those around me behave, I probably bore them quite a lot about, you know, this is not the way to do it or this is the way to do it. But I do think that there is a difference between the way in which hospitality and gift-giving structured into the society in our period, in the early modern period, and the way that it structures in now. I still think these ideas of generosity and giving are important and more important sometimes than we assume in just sort of getting the socks at Christmas or whatever it is. I think also the hierarchical nature of early modern society, its dependence on forms of charity which are informal and so on and so forth, and we'll go through a list of things of this kind, mean that it's a society in which gift and giving and gift exchange is more important than its equivalents, at least in modern Western society. I'm tempted often to go to anthropological examples when I compare what I've looked at in the past with modern society rather than what happens when we get to Christmas. Well, I think that what someone studies, what they choose to spend their life researching, actually does in many ways say something about who they are Mm. and the fact that you have invited me to your house (laughs) to record this podcast and given me tea and biscuits I think demonstrates a wonderful sense of hospitality and of gift giving thank you for the gift of your time and your hospitality today thank you it was great fun thank you so very much for your support for not just the Tudors please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. I wish you a happy new year. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.